Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. Each episode, I speak with industry experts from the attractions world. In today's episode, I speak with Paul Jervis Heath, founding partner and chief creative officer at Modern Human. We discuss service design for attractions and how to apply this to the visitor funnel and the visitor journey. We also hear about the brilliant work Modern Human carried out for the Ashmolean Museum in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Paul, welcome to the podcast. It's really, really lovely to have you on. Thank you very much, Kelly. It's great to be here. As ever, I am going to probe you with a few uh, quick fire questions. So I am ready. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Are you a cat person or a dog person? I, I have a cat. Um, I'm probably more of a cat person. Yeah. Easier to look after, less maintenance. I've been thinking about this because I because we have two dogs and so we're recording this in February at the moment. It is very snowy outside. And I've been thinking about the convenience of a cat and not having to take it out for a walk, not getting muddy, very, not really liking the rain. Quite easy. Very much so. Just just kind of open the door, let them out. They do the funniest thing when it's snowed where they shake, they, they, they take a step and shake their paw in disgust <laughs> and then put the next paw down and do the same and kind of make their way across the whole garden um, doing this little kind of paw shaking dance, which oh. is ridiculous. <laughs> My Daxon will do that if it's raining. So she will refuse, point blank, really? refuse to go outside in the wet rain no, it's not for her. But the minute it snows, it's the best thing in the world. I don't know what the difference is between wet, you know, <laughs> wet water and slightly more solid water, but she's she's down with that. Very weird. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, what is currently on your Netflix list or other on-demand TV service? Um, I, I, I am currently re-watching The West Wing. Oh, great. Which is um, fantastic. But it looks um, dated when we think about the Trump presidency, you know, because the, assu- the, the, the assumption was always that, that politics was, was sensible in some way and that they were trying to, you know, there's, that, uh, all of the conversations in the West Wing are about how the Democrats and Republicans come to some sort of agreement through um, kind of discussion and trading of, of, you know, tax breaks and all of those kind of things. Um, and it looks very dated when you think of the state of politics as it was up until very recently. Yeah, we just we just rip that up and throw it up in the yeah, air. Just, you know? exactly. Forget about all of that good stuff. <laughs> Reality um, uh, outstripped the drama of um, of the West Wing, I think. Um, yeah, and and everything else on my Netflix is um, is my daughter's, who's eight. So. Um, you know, it's it's Art Ninja and Blue Peter and all of those kind of things. Oh, Art Ninja sounds like something that I might actually enjoy. What is Art Ninja? Art Ninja is fantastic and a lifesaver at the moment. It's uh, a little bit like Art Attack. Right, um, you look yes. Similar, Neil like Buchanan. Art Attack, Neil yep. Buchanan, yeah. So it's so a little bit like that. Um, it's a guy who shows kids how to make stuff. Um, and it's been a lifesaver through lockdown. The number of activities we have borrowed off Art Ninja on, um, on uh, BBC iPlayer uh, to keep busy um, it would be um, probably embarrassing to admit. I've never heard of it, and I'm not going to lie, I'm going to get involved in some of that myself now. I'm a, I like a bit of craft, Paul. So, yeah. you know, it sounds like a programme for me. <laughs> OK, last one of these ridiculous questions. If you have to sing karaoke, what's your song? Oh, uh, yeah. I think Rocket Man by Elton John. 
great song. Yeah, I love a bit. I love a bit of that. I'm not sure how good I would be. It's a long time since I've done. It's a long time since everyone's done karaoke, I suppose. But yeah, I go for a bit of Rocket Man by uh, by Elton. It's a great song. It's a crowd pleaser as well, Paul. I think you've got to choose something that the crowd is going to be really behind yeah. you with with karaoke. And then honestly, it doesn't matter about the quality, does it? I can't sing for That's Toffee, it. but I'd always go for one that the crowd's going to join in on. Something with a strong chorus that everybody can join into. <laughs> I'm with you. Great, great choice. All right. Okay. Um, so we always ask about your unpopular opinion on this show. So can you tell me something that you believe to be true that nobody agrees with you on? Oh, I think that's a really, that's a really tricky question for me. I think I've, I've lost track of all the unpopular opinions that I've had or have ever had. Uh, I, I think because it happens daily, um, well, um, I've just realised how disagreeable that makes me sound, but um, it's not that. It's it's just that doing what I do, you often have to be a contrarian. A client will consider something is impossible, and then you calmly have to ask why it's impossible or why they can't do it. And so, one of any designer's superpowers is doubt. You know, kind of doubt that things are are the way that will always be the way that they are now, or doubt the way that about the way that an organization operates and can't change or doubt that the future might not be like the present and and it kind of reminds me of Arthur C. Clarke's first law of prediction you know Arthur C. Clarke said that when a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible he's almost certainly right but when he states that something's impossible then he's probably wrong and I think you can substitute the scientist in Clark's first law for a distinguished executive, a distinguished business leader, a distinguished CEO. Um, you know, um, and so um, I think one of the one of the keys to creativity is is doubt. Um, and so, um, and I think the other is belief as well. Belief that in the human capacity for ingenuity and, and creativity, and belief that we can solve any problem that's put in front of us. And so, inevitably. With what we do at Modern Human, um, I end up diplomatically disagreeing with a lot of people. Um, and so it's it's really hard to say how many unpopular opinions I had yesterday, um, let alone how many I might hold in, in total. Um, <laughs> just as, just the role just puts me in that kind of, you know, that kind of role as contrarian. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Paul, being in very similar role myself. But you do feel like you are being... You're being slightly argumentative in some way almost on most days. <laughs> yes, yeah, you're, you're constantly in a situation where you're 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 disagreeing because it's so people will fall into a pattern of operating that is um, we all we all do it. You know, we all fall into habits. We all whether whether it's professionally or or, or kind of in in our personal lives. You know, my, I've just talked to you about my habit of watching The West Wing so that I don't have to trawl Netflix to choose anything. I've got seven seasons of The West Wing to go at. And it, it's that habit forming, right? But the problem with those habits is then they become assumptions and those get baked into the way, you know, when we do it professionally, into the way an organisation operates and the beliefs that an organisation has. Arthur C. Clarke, again, he talked about two failures of prophecy. And the first was the failure of nerve. And the failure of nerve is um, when um, even given all the relevant facts, you know, that uh, a would-be prophet can't see that they point to an inescapable conclusion. And I think that happens very rarely in business, you know, that actually um, it's not so much a failure of nerve 
that that happens you know i actually think that organizations are really good at looking at data and interpreting data and sometimes there's there's a bias and and there's you know what gets measured gets managed and and all of those kind of failures but i think the 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 failure that that happens in business a lot is the the second of arthur c Clarke's kind of failures of prophecy and that's the failure of imagination and that arises when all of the facts are completely appreciated they're marshaled correctly but actually, when the really vital facts are, are are undiscovered, actually, we don't know something. And, you know, the possibility of their existence is not even admitted, you know. And I think that that happens quite a lot, that actually that organisations don't know what they don't know and have a, a, a kind of blindness to it because of all the things they do know, yeah. pushing out all the possibilities of the things that they don't. And so you, you, I, I end up playing the contrarian. Um, I, I end up playing the professional contrarian quite a bit, I think. <laughs> well, this leads us perfectly on to what you do and, and what Modern Human does. So could you, I mean, you're the founder of Modern Human. Could you give us a, a little bit of kind of info about your background and leading on to, you know, how you founded Modern Human and, and what you guys do there? Yeah, absolutely. I've been a designer for nearly 25 years. In that time, I've designed just about um, everything. Um, You know, I've designed dashboards for driverless cars. I've designed connected hope, kitchen appliances, you know, um, libraries, call centers, just about everything, like a a really kind of broad and varied portfolio. I I spent some time at at Cambridge University as their, their head of innovation, um, and, and stepping out of the, the, the kind of London design scene and, um, you know, I inevitably had kind of clients calling and asking what I was doing, asking if I could help them with with kind of things. Um, and I ended up running a workshop for a couple of clients that I'd worked with before. And that just led on to founding Modern Human. And, and, and we've kind of grown sustainably over eight years. We've been a practice for eight years and we've kind of grown um, sustainably over that time. We're now almost 15 people and, you know, designers of different types, design researchers. We do um, we do a lot of ethnography. So we've got anthropologists on staff. We've got design researchers on staff, ethnographers, as well as service designers, product designers, workplace and, and environment designers as well. So we've tried to stay varied. And that's actually really hard in, in design because it's very easy to concentrate on, on digital design on architectural design or whatever it is it's actually relatively hard to build quite a a varied portfolio so we've been very lucky to be able to do that and work on some fantastic um, projects with some fantastic clients so that's something that I want to talk to you about actually is is the variety of what you do because I think one of the services that you offer is around service design Um, when we first spoke what I found quite interesting was Service design for me has always been something that I've really associated with kind of public sector, but very much kind of government services or NHS services. But that isn't the case for you at all, is it? It's it's completely different sectors that you work with. Yeah, we do. Um, we actually don't do a lot of public sector service design at, at the moment. It's it's all commercial um, service design. So if you think about how you service your credit card, for example, You know, obviously, in the 21st century, you will do that on a day to day basis, probably through an app or you'll have a a standing order set up. But every now and again, you'll need to ring the bank. And that's the nature of service design. Service design is all about the the, the kind of multi-channel. 
And so not just about the kind of digital touch points, but what happens when um, when when somebody calls? When do you want someone to call as well? Because what you notice about a lot of organizations now is obviously when somebody calls you, there's a cost associated with that. And that cost might be, you know, anywhere between eight, 12 pound a call, 15 pound a call, depending on how your call center operates. But if you think about it, if you're only interacting through an app, then there's a danger that you don't really, uh, you become commoditized. Actually, you become a remote service in the, in the customer's mind, and then you're completely interchangeable. Every bank's got an app, so why wouldn't I change from this bank to that bank and use their app? Because their app looks as good as that app. None of us can tell how good the apps are when we're, when we're choosing a, a bank, for example. And so service design is really all about those moments where you actually um, want to use digital touch points because they're cheap fast, convenient, you know, all of those things that we all know about as consumers. And actually then what happens when you perhaps don't want um, somebody using an app or, or that you want to speak to them? And how do you build your value through those interactions? Because typically those interactions are the most difficult. They're, you know, complaints. When, when you complain to an organization, how is that complaint dealt with? We've worked with a financial services company and managed to reduce the time that it takes for them to um, handle a complaint down by two thirds. And so more customers getting more complaints dealt with more quickly and increase their customer satisfaction at the same time. And that's by looking at what happens when somebody calls and how that call gets triaged and who deals with it and how can they deal with it better at first point of contact. So the first person that you speak to doesn't have to put you on hold and pass you around departments and all of those kind of things. And so that service design kind of lens really lends itself to kind of thinking about how uh, organizations operate in the 21st century, accepting that digital touch points are a really important kind of part of the mix, but that actually human touch points, you know, whether that's on the phone or in person, actually, we're all looking for that. And I think we're actually looking for it a little bit more at the moment because we're all shut in and uh, in lockdown and craving human contact. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the reasons that I thought getting you on the podcast would be a really great idea because what you've described is very much how attractions need to look at how they're operating at the moment. You talked a little bit there about the customer service side, which is interesting. So a lot of the attractions that we've spoken to are actually having more, uh, not, not, not necessarily customer complaints, but actually more customer interaction than they normally would at certain touch points because they've had to launch with 100% ticketing and pre, you know, pre-booking. And for some, that uptake for guests has been a little bit difficult or maybe what they've had to launch with has been slightly a slightly cumbersome user journey. And so that there's a there's a barrier there. There's a challenge. And then they're getting more kind of customer calls about how do they do certain things. And it's just not not super clear. And so when we started speaking, I was like, well, this is we we talk about that experience very much as a as a kind of visitor experience but actually it's service design that covers the whole spectrum of that you know we look at it very much from a digital perspective others will look at it very much from a uh, an in experience perspective but the service design actually covers both yeah and that kind of move to 100% ticketing is is one of the greatest opportunities i think for Absolutely. attraction 
knowing who's coming through your door um, getting their permission to you know contact them after their visit even if that's just to ask how their visit was and actually when you think about it in that kind of inter lockdown kind of period that was the best visitor experience you were ever going to have of a museum you know because I wanted to go to the Louvre you know um, during that period where you know there was going to be a hundred percent ticketing because normally you stand in front of the Mona Lisa and you're kind of bobbing around looking between people's heads but you know you'd have a a kind of uninterrupted view because there'd be no more than kind of three people in the gallery sort of thing and you know selfishly as a as a kind of visitor that's uh, that that would be a fantastic experience and all those kind of fantastic um, attractions we've got in the UK as well I think it sounds really odd when you think of visitor experience as a service because we're used to services being you know there's there being some exchange potentially between um, the service provider and the service user but actually um, I think service design is the perfect set of tools for looking at the visitor journey you know it provides a way of thinking about a service in a really holistic multi-channel way and so while it might sound a little bit odd to refer to a museum visit as a service actually the tools of service design are perfectly suited for the job you know that that kind of service blueprinting that kind of experience mapping looking at where digital touch points come in where um you know the 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 visitor kind of experience the the in-gallery visitor experience can be improved how you help people who are struggling with tickets even things like how you deal with people who haven't who didn't know that they had to buy a ticket and have just turned up because some of those people might be your most um, loyal visitors, you know, and they, they, they just haven't thought about it because they're so used to just kind of walking in or their members, you know, and haven't thought about the ticketing experience. You don't really want to send them away to have to book a ticket. So, you know, how do you recover from those moments? And I think that's the other thing that service design is very good at thinking about service recovery and how when something goes wrong, you pick up the thing that's gone wrong and you deal with it quite often in a non-digital channel you know so you know what are the human workarounds that you've got to resolve some of these situations and get that visitor kind of back on track and into your attraction and and kind of having a great experience again it's a vast challenge isn't it like I'm listening to you describe all of these touch points for you know digital and human and it's it's a huge challenge but you you've actually been through this process with the Ashmolean quite recently haven't you could you just talk us through what you did for them and how you how you kind of implemented the changes there yeah we 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 sort of worked in in two or three phases with the the Ashmolean and so um we've worked with Oxford University's gardens libraries and museums on on several projects and and one of those was looking at the the digital customer user journey if you like so you know where was digital involved in the visitor journey where was it not involved as well really importantly and and why and and what was the behaviors that that kind of led to that and we looked at that for for all of the gardens libraries and museums at, at oxford university and then ashmolean got back in touch after the first lockdown and said actually you know we're we're, we're planning on reopening this piece of work feels important, not just for, for now, but, but for the future. We want to think about what the next 12 months looks like. And we're in a very different situation because we're looking at very like reduced visitor numbers. We're looking at, so what will the visitor experience be given the constraints that we now have around coronavirus, distancing, ticketing, you know, all of those kind of things. And so it really looked at both the, the, the challenges that that's 
that creates, but also the opportunities it creates for the Ashmolean Museum. And, and we created kind of a two-phase kind of deliverable for them. The first was looking at their reopening. And their reopening was, I think, two or three weeks away from when we started. And so we helped them think about, you know, what's the, what's the visitor experience going to be um, of reopening? And we thought about, um, you know, actually as museums and visitor attractions were reopening during that, uh, you know, between lockdowns, what we concentrated on was the, the, the very best kind of visitor experience that you can imagine of having of these attractions, because there's going to be fewer people there, you know, and actually, therefore, how do we, yes, you're going to have to buy a ticket beforehand. Yes, you're going to have to think about your visit a little bit. But that means that when you get there, you've got this kind of um, experience where you wander around without the crowds, you know, and actually get a chance to look at everything that you want to. And the, the director of um, the Ashmolean was really keen that we didn't go down this, the same route as the National Portrait Gallery, where we laid out particular routes that people had to stick to. Okay. And I think that was really key to brief in, in many ways, because the Ashmolean has such a wide variety of things. You know, in one, it's got the Egyptian gallery where they've got, you know, um, a, a mummy and it's got, you know, Egyptian tombs and some fantastic kind of Egyptian artifacts. It's got the, the kind of Greek and the Roman, but it's also got an art gallery upstairs. And so it's a really varied collection. And so the, the you know, the, the sensible question was, well, how would we even construct a route through all of this stuff that would interest everyone? It's such a varied collection that actually some people do just want to go and spend hours looking at Egyptian artifacts. And some people want to take the tour and see a little bit of everything. And so we really had to think about, well, OK, so how do we move people through this space safely, first of all? But also, how do we engage them? at a level that's deeper than they've ever been engaged before with the museum because you know there's going to be fewer people here they can have the very the deepest experience they want of these artifacts and for some people they won't want that They'll, they just want somewhere to wander that isn't their their own four walls yeah. and something different to see and you know what that's fine too it's you know a perfect kind of place for that too um, and so what we came up with was um, this idea of a, a spotlight trail 12 objects that really gave a sense of the variety of things that were available at the, the museum. But the key thing about that was that it acted like a spine. So rather than, you know, being a, a kind of a mandatory kind of trail, you can just do this, that actually it led you through the gallery in, in, a, in a kind of sensible way that you could then jump off spot something you were interested in, like a massive Greek statue, and go, oh, I wonder what that is, and potter off to that, have a look at that, and then come back to the trail and follow it around the rest of the museum, and then, you know, deviate and all of those kind of things. Nice. And there were a few areas where, actually, because of safety, we had to create a one-way system. You know, there's a few pinch points, uh, one-way staircases and things like that. But actually, the museum did a lot of the thinking about that because they know they knew their space very well. And so we had a long day where we spent the, the time walking around the museum, you know, working out which bits were one way, which bits were kind of going to kind of flow in, in what way and, and how that leads people around and people, you know, make sure that nobody ends up at a dead end and didn't know where to go. All of those kind of hygiene factors. But one of the things we noticed during that um, first lockdown is you'll remember when uh, when we started coming out of that first lockdown, um, a, a lot of the restaurants had QR codes. Yeah. 
for menus. And so when you went to a restaurant, like just after that first lockdown, I think the government was doing a scheme like like eat out kind of discounts. I can't remember what they called it. Eat out to help out scheme. That's the one. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, the restaurants were very keen to get people back in and they, they'd all put kind of QR codes to their menus and you could order and then they bring the food and stuff like that. And so we were like, you know what, this could be the this could be the a resurgence of the QR code. The QR code <laughs> It was an old technology that had sort of died and become a bit of a joke, you know, because, well, because they got used on the London Underground quite a bit where you haven't got a mobile signal, you know, and, and, and things like that. They've been put, you know, high up on a billboard where you've got no chance of getting a photo of it as you kind of sped past in your car or, or whatever. You know, they, they've been used in some really daft places. But seeing this behavior and seeing even you know all ages all kind of um all kind of demographics kind of using qr codes when they were going out on the eat out to help out scheme we thought actually what if we use the the qr code in the tour as well so that actually if you're interested in um the artifacts on the spotlight tour you can scan the qr code and get a much deeper engagement and whereas that might be um, troublesome when there's lots of people in the gallery to have a few people who are on their mobile phones trying to um, capture the, the QR code and read the information that's there. Actually, when there's fewer people there, there's fewer people to kind of bump up against and, and all of those kind of things. So if you want more information about that historical artifact that isn't on the little kind of board that you, you perhaps get next to it, well, now's your opportunity to discover everything that the Ashmolean knows about that particular artifact. And everything that they know might include, you know, um, some of the um, some of the darker history of that object, you know, where that object was procured from, you know, some of the, the contested kind of history behind that object. Some of the things that they can't put on, um, are, are, you know, on the uh, on the little plaques for room um, and, and things like that. And so you can you can unlock um, you know, um, uh, things like black history, you can unlock uh, alternative um, voices about that object, uh, you know, alternative critique of the object, all sorts of things. Because in a digital kind of um, uh, sphere, you can put unlimited amounts of information about an object and allow people to navigate it kind of sensibly much more than you could put on a, on a you know, the boards that are behind the artifact. And so we thought about that as well. We also thought about the kind of visitor funnel, as it as it were, and, and likened it to the conversion funnel that a commercial organisation would go through, you know, and actually thought about how do you entice somebody from casual visitor or somebody who's considering a visit to an attraction through to actually becoming a member and a, and a repeat member through a one-time donation to a, a kind of repeat and regular member. Because I think, you know, when you're faced with the situation where you're going to have massively fewer numbers you have to be much more efficient in a business sense about encouraging people to spend money whether it's spending money in the cafe whether it's spending money in the um, gift shop whether it's you know becoming a member and of course that's where the opportunities of ticketing come in that if you ask to gather people's data while they're ticketing and reuse that data then yes you can send them a survey afterwards to say how was your visit but you can also tell them about all of the great work that the, the attraction does. You can tell them about, you know, the, the artifacts afterwards. You can, you can do all kinds of things to deepen and extend their engagement after their visit. I think that's really important. I also think when, when it's your, your kind of one cultural visit that you've done after lockdown, you know, that actually 
buying a buying a souvenir and, and maybe having that uh, and maybe doing it from home when you get home rather than browsing the, the the shop whilst you're at the attraction you know that's something that that kind of ticketing kind of enables as well so there's um, there's loads of opportunity in that that ticketing situation and I was speaking to um, the client at the Ashmolean the other day and they said, unlike um, other attractions that they've spoken to, they've had no complaints about the trail. They've had, I think, 25% of visitors have followed the, the trail and they've seen an uptick in their spend in both the gift shop and the cafe. And so, you know, it's been been really kind of successful in, in, in that way. Do you think part of that is because how you didn't make it rigid. So when you, when you were describing the trail, it felt very, it felt very loose. It felt very comfortable, you know, like you weren't being forced in a certain direction, which is, and we don't like that, do we? We don't like to be forced to do something that, or follow, you know, rules, let's face it. Yeah. If you're told you can do one thing or you're told that you, you have to follow this, this trail, the first thing that you think about is like, well, what are all the things that I'm yeah. missing? <laughs> yeah, what are all the things that I, that I'm not seeing? And I, and I think, when you design, you know that you are um, you're influencing people's behaviour. And you often design to influence people's behaviour. And that gives you an ethical responsibility as a designer to only kind of influence in, in positive ways. But I think that's the, the magic of service design, that actually you influence people to do things that they sort of wanted to do anyway, but are sort of convenient to the the institution that you're designing for at the same time. And so in that influencing people, I think, you know, rather than telling people what they can't do, you influence them to do the things that they that you want them to do. And in doing that, you you make it easier to behave like a, a good visitor and uh, make people less likely to behave like a, a bad visitor, whatever that may be. <laughs> yeah, I love that. The other part of the Ashmolean project was all about a kind of 12-month program of, of work as well, looking at not only the reopening, but then post-reopening, what are the things that they ought to be doing um, over the next 12 months to, to really kind of underpin the visitor experience and, and actually, you know, create a situation where they can thrive in what is a, you know, a really adverse situation for these visitor attractions. And I think that's still there. And obviously, they're, they're kind of closed again at the moment. Um, but when I know that they're working behind the scenes to put a lot of those things in place, because the, the commercials of visitor attractions have changed radically. And so, um, you know, for, for attractions to thrive again, we, we were both, both Ashmolean and Modern Human, were really keen that we put together a, a kind of 12-month programme to say, actually, you know, how do we um, create a sustainable commercial kind of model if you like you know or, or a, a sustainable way for the Ashmolean to um, retain and engage visitors. Does that plan look at when we're in a situation when we're past this because one of the things that you mentioned earlier around the QR codes was really interesting where you said you know at the moment huge opportunities to go and see something beautiful that you you wouldn't necessarily be able to see that well because there'd be too many people there and you mentioned about QR codes and people you know in a crowded situation it would be quite challenging to have a lot of people around that trying to find out that extra information about that item so what does that look like when attractions can go back to having you know 80 90 100 percent capacity how will they have to change things 
Yeah, I mean, the twelve month vision was was all about that, and I think that's that that is the majority of work that we're doing at the moment. You know, what happens not just in in visitor attractions either. We're currently working with three different clients on how they'll work after coronavirus. Mm-hmm. You know, so they've they've sent everyone home. Everyone's working from home. Uh, and, um, you know, in the interim, some of the companies have, have closed part of their office real estate. And so that their question is, you know, how does the purpose of the office change, yeah. you know, and, and that's partly physical workplace design, but it's also redesigning their ways of working, how they manage people, how work's distributed and completed. You know, you have to really imagine uh, or reimagine what, what work means and how it's done. Um, in order to answer that question. And I think that's part of what we did with with Ashmolean to say, actually, let's think about the different scenarios that might happen in a post-lockdown kind of situation. And it would be lovely to think that by April we'll have all had our um, our jabs and that there'll be no social distancing and all of that kind of thing. But the truth is probably more like the world is... Um, irrevocably changed in some ways Um, and actually it won't be quite like it was before and so what you have to then plan is what is the likelihood of these things of, of things continuing and which things will continue and actually what you can then say is well which things do we want to continue for example would we actually ever want to retain the situation where we've got 100% ticketing you know, actually, that ticketing situation is an opportunity. And we might not be turning people away anymore when they come without a ticket. But we may do something to, to you know, capture some details and give them a kind of virtual kind of ticket um, on the door sort of thing. And so you can then kind of choose in a situation where nobody knows what's going to happen. You can actually choose your own future in a much more effective way because you can say this is how we're going to deal with it. This is how this is what we're going to do. Actually, we can throw our assumptions aside um, and actually go go in a different direction. And I think that's really uh, that's really important. And it comes back to that kind of um, that that thing before about kind of being a contrarian. It's like the world probably isn't going to go back to exactly how it was before. Then it's about choosing the changes that you want to retain, the changes you want to discard and say, actually, how do we want to do things? Because people's assumptions about what a museum visit is or what a visit to a cultural attraction entails have been broken. There's actually a discontinuity between what exists, what has existed up to now and what will exist in the future. And so there's a real opportunity to insert yourself into that discontinuity and actually say, this is what we're going to do going forwards. And I think that's a every organization it's exciting as well isn't it Paul because it it gives you an opportunity to actually be proactive about the situation because because that's one of the biggest frustrations with a lot of the clients that that we've been speaking to is that they've been in such a reactive state all the time with you know having very little time frames between being told when they can open and you know you've got a week or you've got two weeks to prepare and actually making that decision to say no this is when we're going to plan to open and it might be a couple of months after we're allowed to but this is when we're going to and this is what it's going to look like and this is our opportunity to own that and make it a positive experience for the organization as well as the visitor. Yeah, it's a huge opportunity for all organisations to say, rather than say, you know, how quickly can we go back? 
to say, actually, how are we going to move forwards? And that's true of museums. It's true of everyone who, uh, you, you know, every organisation that's got employees. I don't want to sound Pollyanna-ish about how great the opportunities are after after coronavirus. It's been a terrible situation. Um, people have missed out on an awful lot of things. A lot of people have died. It's, it, you, you know, it's, it's certainly not a, a positive situation. But I think there are positives that we can take mm-hmm. from it. And I think one of those positives is this discontinuity between the assumptions of the past and what's possible in the future. One of the areas where this is really stark is, um, you know, working from home. So many organisations said it is impossible for our staff <laughs> to work from home. And look at us. <laughs> and now look at us. Somehow... We've all managed it. Now, we might not right now in February in the UK be enjoying working from home, (laughs) but it is possible to work from home. You know, there were organisations that said you can't do creativity remotely. And of course, that's nonsense as well. And it's been shown to be nonsense. You can be creative in a group remotely. You just have to do it differently. Um, And so that lack of imagination that organisations have had has disappeared you know, actually, we've busted that assumption that it's not possible to work from home. It's not possible to do creative work remotely. It's not possible to do a client meeting over Zoom or whatever, you know, whatever those assumptions were. And I think that discontinuity exists when it comes to, um, you know, our free time as well. You know, it's broken a lot of the assumptions people have about what it means to, to visit a cultural attraction, how they go about that, what's expected of them when they do and all of those kind of things. And that means that it can be rebuilt in a way that is very different to perhaps how it looked before. I also think a lot of cultural attractions have done some really great stuff during lockdown to keep people engaged. You know, some of the some of the um, Zoom talks and stuff like that. Um, I bought my parents a, a Zoom cheese tasting for Christmas. You know, cheese and wine pairing. They got the the cheese and wine sent to them, and and you know somebody taught them through it on a on a Zoom call. Brilliant. You know, I know a lot of cultural attractions have been talking about some of their kind of objects and artifacts um, on Zoom and going really deep into that. Now, you know, when you're kitted out to do that, you can't believe that that, that perhaps that wasn't happening beforehand. But that that kind of necessity as the mother of invention has really made people get creative about uh, about what they do to keep people engaged and engage people in the collections and, you know, um, provide extra value to members of their uh, of their institutions and all of those kind of things. And I think that's something that, that actually gives us a really good kind of jumping off point for going forwards rather than just kind of going back. So it's inevitable that, that some things will, will have to change. The nice things about the floor, so the QR codes that you mentioned, we put on um, floor decals. So they were, um, I'm, I'm showing Kelly like how big they were, which works brilliantly on a podcast, right? Me showing you in, with my hands how big they are. Um, but um, so, so they're, uh, um, you know, they're, they're about kind of, um, you know, 20 centimetres across, something like that. I can't remember, they're 20, 25 centimetre decals. And they're stuck on the floor next to the object with an arrow pointing to the object. And so you can tell what object they correspond to. You can stand above it and scan it on your phone. And even in a dark gallery, you know, they're bright enough that, um, you know, with high enough contrast that you'd be able to scan them. But when there's lots of people in the gallery, you can imagine somebody might be stood on the QR code yeah. that you want to scan or something like that. And you then have to take a choice. So do we, do we dot more QR codes around it? 
Or do we do something actually cleverer with the technology? Do we do some kind of geofencing, for example, so that actually when somebody's in this room, we can tell them about the objects in this room on their mobile device. And I think this all depends then on on people's behavior in the space. And our whole kind of ethos behind any type of design that we do is that you have to watch people to understand their needs. I think one of the one of the mistakes that any organization makes is that they'll run surveys or they'll run focus groups and try and diagnose what people need from a survey or a focus group. And of course, a survey assumes that you know the right questions to ask. Um, And a focus group is really just a way of kind of gathering opinion. But if you want to understand what they really need, you really have to observe their behavior because people don't necessarily know kind of what they intuitively need, particularly not their latent needs. So they can tell you about needs that they're already having satisfied in some way. But what they can't tell you is about their undiagnosed needs, because often they haven't diagnosed their needs um, if it, you, you know, effectively either. But when you watch their behavior, you'll see them do something that's kind of a tell as to an unmet need. And then you can dive deep into to, to kind of how people behave and why they behave like that and identify kind of what's missing in their experience. And so um, the key thing is, you know, we made the decals liftable so they can, if they're not working, you just take them up, put more down. But actually by observing people's behavior in the gallery, you can work out then, you know, how many people are engaging with that information, how much of a a need is is there for that information, and then what other ways could you provide it? What, what, What adaptations do you need as more people come into the gallery? I think the key thing is not to stop yourself from making a change because you can already think of the problems. I think, you know, yes, that's um, if there's obvious problems with an idea then you need to to kind of kill the idea and and move on to something that will work. But actually um, the number of times that people will uh, discount an idea because it doesn't work in outlying situations is, is really high. And actually sometimes what people will do is they'll discount an idea for a situation that will never um, or very rarely occur. And so actually much better to watch people's behavior and, and, and design for the behavior you do see than imagine the behavior that you might see and, you know, design for um, imagined extremes. So as we're, cause what, cause one of my questions was going to be around, you know, what do we think the visitor behaviours and expectations are going to be as we as we go move further into 2021? But would that be your advice to, to attractions that are, you know, at the moment, we're still in lockdown. Let's say most attractions at the moment are probably planning for reopening around Easter time, just after Easter. Is that your advice to them? You know, open safely and then watch your visitors, you know, really observe their behaviours and how they're interacting with your venue. I think that's certainly part of the part of the equation, because un, unless you're doing that, and I'm sure attractions will, but un, unless you're doing that, um, there's a danger that you assume that their behavior will change in a certain way mm-hmm. um, and then get confounded when it when it doesn't or when people bring their own kind of new assumptions into a space. But you can also kind of predict likely behavioral changes um, from the situation as well so it's a balance of the two to be perfectly honest I think what you what you want to do is you want to to think forwards um, and try and identify how people's needs have changed and rather than the tasks that people do when you look at the goals behind why they do them goals very rarely change for people but tasks change all the time 
And so in any great shift like we've had, what you see is that the goal behind why they were visiting the cultural attraction, the goals behind their visit will stay the same. But the tasks that they might do to fulfill that visit might be very different. And so I always um, kind of counsel organizations to look, look for their look for their users and visitors goals. Why are they coming? Because those won't change or they'll change much less than a task, you know, where actually they might need to book a ticket now, for example. And so there's an extra task that they didn't have to do before completely new task but if you think about why they're coming they're still coming to get there was always an element of a change of scene there was always an element of entertaining the kids you know there was always an element of of um providing an experience for someone else you know actually somebody's visiting and i want to show them something and therefore i'm facilitating their visit actually to a cultural attraction and kind of showing off where i live or the you know the life i have or or something like that you know there's there's fulfilling a a kind of passion that i have you know i'm really interested in vikings and i'm going to go and um, i'm going to go and see some viking artifacts and so those goals are still there and once you understand those goals you can then say well how have those goals changed as a result of coronavirus and lockdown and things like that. And then you can then identify what behaviors might be more prevalent after you reopen. And so I would always say, go back to the goals. If you understand your visitors goals and you understand their, their kind of um, the, the reasons that they're visiting, then you can then start to think about, you know, ha- have those reasons changed? How will the things that they do in order to facilitate that visit change in line with that goal? And it gives you a way of thinking very differently about the types of visitors that you get rather than just thinking about them as a demographic, you know, that all young people visit like this or all, you know, over 65 visit like that. It's actually a much more accurate model to say these are the reasons that people visit. Um, these are the goals that they have. And here's how they facilitate those goals. And that gives you a much better way of thinking about kind of visitor behavior as you go forwards as well. That's super advice. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure that is going to be really useful to a lot of attractions that are currently planning how they're going to reopen after all of this. If attractions are thinking about, actually, this is something that we need to speak to Paul about, that we, we need to speak to modern human. What are the kind of, what are those triggers for when people might call you in you know what are the kind of challenges that an attraction might have that they would think to pick up the phone and speak to you i think the, i think the big one is um you know um thank you clients usually come to us with some kind of business problem rather than a design challenge to be to be perfectly honest and the, the big one with visitor attractions is um you know the funnel you know how do we turn um how do we turn people who are considering visiting into actual visitors and how do we convert actual visitors into donors and how do we convert donors into members and i think that kind of funnel of, of how you convert through that funnel to to get people closer um to the institution is one of the key questions that we get invited in by institutions to talk to them about i think understanding visitor behavior is another we do a lot of ethnography um, and understand you know whether that's um, understanding how people choose a visitor attraction or how people um, visit a visitor attraction through watching their behavior either longitudinally so we've done studies for example on why people visit scotland as a as a destination and how people choose to visit scotland versus other places you know and and so we got um, people who were planning visits to scotland from all over the world to keep diaries of their their kind of planning um, and and looked at kind of how they chose um, or didn't choose 
um, to, to, to visit Scotland, for example. Uh, and then down to, you know, what attractions did they visit while they were in Scotland? How did they kind of keep that visit alive after they'd visited Scotland? All of those kind of things. And so, you know, looking longitudinally at a visit and, and understanding visitor behaviour is another thing that people kind of ask us to, to, to kind of help them with. And then within that, you've got all of the usual, you know, how do we encourage visitors to stay longer, spend more? Um, how do we appeal to different types of visitors? Or reveal more about their collection as well. Quite often, the um, frustration for museums particularly is that they know all about, you know, so much about these artifacts that they've got, you know, and they can put only so much yeah. <laughs> on all about those artifacts. And so how, when you've got some of the most fantastic artifacts in the world, you know, you've perhaps got the only one of something in the world. How do you tell people everything that you know about that? And also, you know, discuss some of the issues around it, you know, around, you know, British colonialism, for example, and the checkered past of the acquisition of some of these objects and all of these kind of things. You know, how do you tell uh, kind of alternative, how do you bring in alternative voices and maybe tell the, you know, wherever that artifact is from how do you tell um the the, the kind of, that kind of culture story about that artifact not just the the kind of anglicized kind of version of it um you know all of those kind of things are, are kind of questions that we get involved with and you know how do people extend their relationship with visitors how do they deepen the relationship with visitors that's that's really um kind of key in in, in a lot of those questions amazing thank you well, i mean that's given our listeners i'm sure plenty of food for thought on why they might want to book a chat with you and we will supply all of Paul's contact details uh, in our show notes as well but Paul it's the last question of the podcast and it's a, a question that I ask all of our guests um, and it's is there a book that you would recommend and this this can be something that you really love that has either helped you throughout your career or just a book that you really love and has become um, a, you know part of you I am um, I think the book the book that I read and I, I read it every January is um, Chris Hatfield's autobiography. Now, uh, for, for anyone who doesn't know who that is, Chris Hatfield is a Canadian astronaut and he was captain of the uh, International Space Station. And the biography tells, you know, like many biographies, it tells the story of how he became a, a, an astronaut and his kind of life story and fills in some of the details behind that. But one of the key things in this book um, is something that Chris um, Hatfield talks about, um, expedition thinking. And that's the fact that you're going into this kind of hostile environment as an astronaut and you all have to come back alive. And so it's not about like who's the best astronaut. And the reason that, you, you know, when you think about astronauts, they're typically fighter pilots, they're typically, you know, test pilots. They're usually very, very competitive people. They're usually alpha people um, that get selected for the astronaut program. And one of the things that you have to learn as an astronaut is this kind of idea of expedition thinking, that it's actually we either all get home or, or the mission was a failure. And that runs counter to that kind of alpha thinking. Um, and he talks about this idea of grading your kind of um, involvement in anything as either a minus one, a zero or a plus one. You never want to be a minus one. You never want to detract from whatever is happening, because even fixing a space toilet has, um, you know, the opportunity to go massively wrong and result in death. And so you never want to be a minus one. You never want to be detracting from the work of your team and your crewmates. 
the best something in many situations you can hope to be is a zero you know that actually you go you play your part you don't detract from the work of the team um, but you, you you know you assist the team you do everything that you can and in the odd situation you will get to be a plus one you know you'll get to be that kind of outstanding astronaut that outstanding leader but if you go in trying to make every situation into the situation where you're at the plus one, you very quickly become the minus one. Um, you know, you quickly become the one that, that, that everyone in the team is having to work around. And, and I just think that idea of expedition thinking is a brilliant kind of um, way of thinking about how a team works and how a team works together and how, you know, yes, everyone wants to shine, but really, the only way you can shine is if everyone shines together. And sometimes that means assisting others to shine, not necessarily being in the limelight yourself. Um, and I read it the, um, every, every year to just kind of remind myself about expedition thinking and remind myself that I can't always be the, the plus one. And that sometimes the best I can do is sit quietly and help the team. Uh, and, you know, that is that is enough. That sounds like a perfect book to read at the start of every year, Paul, and and actually a perfect book if you are running a team of designers and developers like we both are. So (laughs) thank you for that recommendation personally. And if you you want the opportunity to win Paul's book, then you just need to head over to our Twitter account and you retweet this podcast announcement with the words, I want Paul's book. And then you'll be in a chance of winning that later on in the year. Paul, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for joining me today. And we're going to put all of your contact details in show notes, as I said earlier. But where's the best place that people can get hold of you if they would like a chat about what we've talked about today? Best thing to do is to drop me an email, paul at modernhuman.co or or look me up on LinkedIn. I'm Paul Jervis Heath on LinkedIn. Fabulous. And again, we will put all of those details in the show notes. So you'll have all of those available to you. Paul, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on today. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Kelly. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.